This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You On Fire. You On Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 118, and I am interviewing Erin Brown, author, speaker, slam poet, and activist about the relationship between sexual abuse and body image, female leadership and empowerment, and how to teach kids about oppression. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 118. Before we begin, let me give a shout out to PV Runners who left this amazing review. As a no diet dietitian, I am always looking for new ways to help my clients and myself develop a different and more enjoyable relationship with food and their body. Issues with dieting, food, and body image are never actually about what you put or don't put in your mouth, and diets don't work. Summer isn't afraid to share her past and current struggles, which makes this podcast relatable and still informative. Her guests have usually been down the dark diet exercise hate myself road and share how they were able to find their way back to a well-lit road of food enjoyment, body confidence, and fun movement. Awesome review. Thank you so much for that. You can help others to find the show by leaving a review. Just go to iTunes, search for Fearless Rebel Radio, then click ratings and reviews and click to leave a review or give it a rating. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the show via iTunes or whatever platform you use. I would greatly appreciate that. And if you haven't already, grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. Today's guest is Erin Brown. Erin Brown is an author, international speaker, slam poet, and activist from Lawrence, Kansas. Her work focuses on women and autonomy. It includes themes of positive body image, eradicating rape culture, honoring the power of our voices, self-care over martyrdom, intersectional thinking, and inclusive leadership. Her first book, As Is, is an exploration of the thinking errors she had to overcome to feel comfortable in her body and find peace in her skin. Letters to Lola is a series of essays to her daughter regarding growing up girl, which speaks honestly to abuse and the harmful narratives she hopes her daughter can see clearly rather than attach herself to. And her third piece is both a book and spoken word poem. Sovereign explores the story from abuse and internalized misogyny to fully expressed autonomy and leadership. I highly recommend you grab a copy of Sovereign. It's an amazing, amazing book. Uh, as you're going to hear in this interview, we cover some of the topics that she covers in that book and we blow it up, but it's uh, it's really, really powerful and I and I definitely recommend it. So you'll be able to find the link to that book in the show notes for this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 118. Let's get started. 
Hello, Erin. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here finally. It's and I'm actually glad at the timing because I really want to talk to you about your book, Sovereign, which is amazing. And I was saying before we started recording that I just felt so many different emotions when reading it. Like it, it's such a visceral read and really, really powerful. So well done. Thank you. On that topic, what inspired you to write Sovereign and why that title? Well, I had been giving a speech that had a lot of the same subject matter in it for about a year, which is never on purpose. Whenever I'm asked to speak somewhere, I decide I won't speak somewhere where they give me a topic. And so I wanted to kind of wrap up that year that I'd spent doing that specific speech, which I then turned into a poem. But also it was kind of like the end for me of my focus on anti-oppression work. Mm. And now I've shifted into liberation work. And so I wanted it to, I don't know, really tie up all the loose ends on that for me, which tends to be how I work. Like I work on something for a while and then I write a book about it and then I move forward and sovereign because a couple of things. Originally, it was supposed to be called Queen Shit. Mm-hmm. And that was in all of the speeches that I gave. And my husband's all into branding and looked everywhere and no one was using it. And then there was a rap ma- battle between, I think, Nicki Minaj and Remy Ma. And people were hashtagging Queen Shit along with that. Okay. And then the union started using it and it really took off and specifically with black women. And I don't think that like Remy Ma and Nicki Minaj took my hashtag at all. No, <laughs> I think that it's just, you know, we had a similar idea around the same time, but I really didn't like the optics of a white woman stealing from Nicki Minaj and Remy Ma. Right? Absolutely. And so I was like, okay, well, I've got to stick this somewhere because I've been even advertising this for a long time. So I put queen shit in the subtitle And was trying to think what is a word that really even more so exemplifies what I'm talking about. And that's where I came up with sovereign, just the idea that like I am sovereign from all of these narratives about me that I don't agree with. And I'm sovereign from these narratives I was handed about other people that I don't agree with and what it is to really self-govern and think for yourself. And so that's where it came from. And no one was using that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you cover so many different things in it, like if I were to describe what it's about, I'd be like, it's about a lot of things. Like it's about our bodies and our autonomy and leadership and rape culture and like your sexual abuse. Like it's about so many different things. Mm hmm. And so I want to kind of unpack some of those and get your perspective on them. You know, the first part, you use the words pretty ashamed, quiet and of service. And you talk about how women are conditioned to be that way. What was your experience with that like? And how did you sort of develop that lens where you were able to see like, oh, wow, this is the way that we are being asked to perform? A lot of things. One of them that's just made things really clear in my more recent life is I've lived with my husband for 12 years and just seeing how differently not only he approaches things, but is expected to approach things. I knew that before, but living in such close quarters with somebody, I think really illuminates those things. 
and vice versa. My husband's black. So my experience as a white person was really illuminated for me living with him. Again, nothing that was like shocking, but living with somebody on a day to day basis, you really notice what's different about your experience. And so that was huge. And just thinking about on an everyday basis, little tiny things that would show up, the things that I felt like I should do, the things that even as a mom that I thought were important. If I flipped that around and looked at what my husband was doing and thinking about those same things, they were just wildly different. Mm -hmm. And so that thing I encourage people to do a lot when they're trying to figure out, you know, anything is like, what would the dad do? What would a man do? What would the expectation be for a boy in this situation or whatever it is? Because usually it's ridiculous. You know, some of the stuff is coming up with my daughter who's nine and she has like dress code stuff at school. She's not allowed to wear leggings with the thing. She wasn't allowed to wear leggings unless she had a skirt on over it because her butt would be distracting. Mm-hmm. I was like, so what is distracting on the boys? Yes. Right? Yes. It illuminates how ridiculous it is. But outside of that, it's not like I grew up in a like ridiculously oppressive home. It was just very typically Midwestern, you know, all of the ideas and everything that my mom did and my dad, very traditional family. It wasn't abusive. You know, there wasn't anything really alarming happening. It was just really, I think, pretty typical, Mm -hmm. you know, and I walked out with this very specific conditioning without anybody even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And what was your journey to kind of break free from that? I mean, how many years did it take? Or I'm just curious to know kind of what that was like for you. Well, the reason is because I had a daughter. Mm already doing this work. I've been an activist since I was like 16 years old, mostly anti-racism activism. But then I was really tackling sexism with like slam poetry in college. And, you know, I was doing all of that. But I don't think I was really unpacking the internalized part of that until I found out I was having a kid and specifically a girl. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, shit. Well, there's no hiding from yourself now. Like, They're going to look at everything you do and show it back to you. So there's not that option. And two, I realized that all I had to teach my daughter about being a woman was how to hate herself. Yeah, wow. She's nine. I haven't said anything negative about my body in nine years. And really, even though I don't do a whole lot of body image work anymore, that was huge to unpack my relationship with my body, not only because it's so damaging to hate the home that you have to live in, but also because that was the place I put all of my other shame. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to unpack anything else, you know, if like someone broke up with me or I lost a job or anything bad happened, I would just think that it's because something's wrong with my body. And if I can just fix my body. And so unpacking my body stuff, gratefully, illuminated all of these other issues that I had to look at. Yes. Um, which has been really useful because I'm actually dealing with the right thing and not trying to diet away, you know, abuse. Yes, yes. And I mean, that's the case with everyone is that we think the body is the problem. And that's really mm-hmm. that first layer of the onion. And as soon as you pull it back, it's like the real deep wounds are underneath or the real things that need to be healed. And if we don't heal those things, then our body will always be the problem. It will always be the enemy. Yeah. And so often it has to do with sexual abuse as well. I think most women have experienced sexual abuse in their lifetime. I don't think that our our statistics about that are accurate at all, even though they're pretty astonishing. Right. 
And that, that just goes hand in hand with diet culture and that like, there's something about your body attracted it. Something about your body is at fault for it. You know, something about you and the way you presented your body caused harm. Mm. And so it is often that people have eating disorders or disordered eating or disordered relationships with their body as a result of sexual abuse, because they think if they can just fix their body, then they won't be harmed. Yes. And so one of the quotes I actually pulled from your book was related to when you're speaking candidly about your sexual abuse and you write, I learned to carry this violence inside my body and call it shame, which is exactly what you're talking about right now. Yeah. Yeah. And so that has such a huge impact on the relationship that we have with our bodies. And and one of the things that I've always heard is that um, women who have experienced sexual trauma say they no longer feel safe in their bodies. And yeah. it's that becomes this this barrier to feeling whole. Mm hmm. Yeah. And a lot of us do a lot of things to our bodies to try and feel safe in it. For me, that was was eating was getting bigger. I felt safer with a bigger body. Mm -hmm. I felt huge and invisible. And I felt like I would be left alone, which I didn't even realize consciously I was doing until I lost weight and realized how scared I was because people were paying attention to me in a different way. And I was, it was jarring. I was like, I'm, I'm scared. What's happening right now? I'm scared. I felt so invisible. And now people are looking at me and I'm terrified. But it makes sense. I actually recently ran into that guy for the first time in 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm going to share this. I like sharing it, but I can't share it. I, I don't feel comfortable or safe sharing it in my platforms because he's local. Mm -hmm. But as a son in my daughter's martial arts class. Oh, wow. I was like, this is like a Black Mirror episode. Like, this is why you're why she's in this class. And I have to look at you here. But the gift of it, I've never felt better, honestly, is that I was in the room with him, the, the person who has caused all of this pain and trauma for me. And I wasn't scared at all. Mm. And I wasn't mad. And I wasn't, I had some sadness that day. But in the moment, I just felt really like, well, screw you, and relieved that I wasn't traumatized by it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not the same person anymore. And you actually aren't even allowed to look at me, is what I was telling him with my eyes. But it was kind of remarkable to be finished with this. I kind of feel like I'm finished telling this particular story, at least from the stage. And to see him again, it felt like I completed it, like, all yeah. set. With closure you. like a bit of yeah and I almost I hear so much empowerment on your part like no like you can't take anything from me now no nothing yeah what's your advice to women who feel unsafe in their bodies oh it's such a tough question because I think everybody's journey is going to be different mm -hmm. and I hate to give mandates about it especially to people already experiencing so much shame so I'll say that what has worked really well for me is being really curious about things that trigger me and following them. And that's not, you know, a lot of therapists would even say, but that's what led me to Krav Maga. That's what led me to doing the I Empower retreat. It's led me to a lot of different healers of different modalities. But anything that just kind of didn't sit right or was triggering me, I just kept following because I'm like, this is going to come up again. And I don't want to feel unsafe every time this thing happens or this word is said or whatever. So I just remained curious about the things that triggered me and followed them until they didn't anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's useful to me. Again, that's not what a lot of people recommend, but man, nothing freaks me out anymore, you know, and not that I'll never be triggered by anything again, but I feel 
comfortable. And it's because I followed the things that made me unsafe or made me feel unsafe. One of those things was I was in a mastermind group for female business owners. And this woman was in the group that taught Krav Maga. And so I started following her because, you know, supporting the women in the group and all of her training videos scared me. And I was having such a disconnect because I'm looking at this woman that I like and I like the things she's saying and I like that she's hitting stuff. Like in theory, all of these things are fine with me. It was just her in a heavy bag and my whole body just freaked out. And I realized upon like kind of exploring that is that I think I didn't think I had that in me or maybe I didn't fight hard enough or maybe I wasn't capable of that. I know a lot of women have a lot of those same sort of responses around sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to train with her and train with her specifically to fight out of the position I'd been attacked from, which is not for everybody, but I've never been the same since then. Yeah, I think that's what I gather from when you talk about just the role that kind of learning that self-defense played in your healing and being able to help you just feel less fearful is what I got from that. Yeah. I never want to fight anybody. I don't walk around feeling tough or anything. I just know I have it in me. Mm -hmm. And I know some people think that it's sad to think about that. But, you know, I think we're animals. And it's good to know that you have your fight intact. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really powerful. I love what you have done with like your retreat and stuff and, and incorporating and that into it from what I've seen just from what I've seen in your social posts and whatnot. It seems to be a very powerful experience. It is, you know, we're only doing it one more time, I think. Mm, when? So people know. <laughs> <laughs> we are doing it at Rachel Black Graves Gym in Bloomfield, Connecticut in May, May, the weekend of May 5th, I think. Okay, cool. Yeah. And it's not called I Am Power. I think we're done with the retreat. Jenny and Jarrett still work together and I'm still doing workshops, but mostly for logistical reasons. It, it was pretty pricey to put together. There's a lot of moving parts in that particular training. So yeah, I don't think we're going to do exactly that anymore, but it has been really powerful. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, I mean, this will be out before the close of that one. So if there's spots left and people are interested, then hopefully they'll take advantage of the last opportunity. Yeah. So one of the things you wrote was it took time to find a no to stand in. Can Mm. you talk about what you mean by that and what helped you find your no? Well, there's a specific story, actually. There's a guy I credit with that. So I remember growing up, no just felt like like rude, like you're not supposed to say no to people. Yeah. In fact, when I got back from my first I Empower retreat, I realized that the hardest thing for me about that was using my voice in a big way, which surprised me because using my voice in a big way comes really naturally to me, but not to say no. Mm-hmm. And so I came home and I was doing one of the drills with my daughter and just telling her to like put her hands up and yell no. And she yelled no, like it was a question. And I was like, oh my God, I get in there. Right. And so just like to say no and mean it and have everything about me mean it and know it would be respected. Took me a long time, but it was actually this guy that I dated in junior high who broke up with me because he called me Captain Gives None because I was prudish. And we broke up and then he tried to come back when I was in high school and I think he had graduated. And he basically, I thought that he was like into me and I was kind of excited because I really liked him. 
and we were older and I thought it was like, was kind of daydreaming about it. But he came back and said that he didn't really want to date me. Like he didn't want to go to dinner or like be anywhere in public. He could just see us like hanging out like at night and having sex and having that be a secret because he already put in the time. Mm. And I was like, wow, no, 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 actually, no, this is never going to happen. No. And so it was, I was, I don't know, maybe 18 years old. That was the first time I like registered that something was a hell no and had no problem saying that out loud and know that he knew that I meant it. It still took a while to do it on a regular basis, but that was my big, like, wow, someone has actually pushed me all the way to a place that this is a hard, hard pass going to have to pass. Yeah, like the hell no. (laughs) The hell no. But I love that concept of just finding your no to stand in because I feel like that's something that can be applied to every single aspect of our lives. You know, what's okay? What's not okay? What boundaries are we not willing to tolerate in all the different facets of ourselves and our lives? Yeah, and it's simple things like, no, I don't want to watch your kid. (laughs) No, I can't come to lunch. No, I'm not going to answer this phone call that, you know, no, whatever. Now I don't struggle with it at all actually, which is kind of great. And I really try to not have close friendships with people that can't say no, Mm -hmm. because I realized how respected I feel when someone tells me no, because I know that when they say yes, they mean it. Yes. Yeah. And so that has become very important to me, not only for myself, but in my personal relationships, particularly with having a kid. Because when I ask someone to watch my kid, I would never want someone to watch my kid out of obligation or be annoyed that my kid is around. Of course. So I only ask people to watch my kid who have said no before. Yeah. But yeah, it's a big deal. And it's something that we're trained out of that isn't good for us. It isn't good for our relationships. It isn't good for anyone. One thing I found about being pregnant, and my husband's noticed this too, is that my no's are so definitive and firm now. Mm. (laughs) He'll he'll ask me something. I'm like, no, no, we're not doing that. (laughs) I'm not eating that. No, no, we can't do that. Uh, Yeah, it's funny how that. But I was a total people pleaser and I've worked on it very hard. And I feel like I've come to a place where I am much more confident in my nose. But now they're real hard lines and they're they're real fast and real definitive. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah, there's something about that shift to mother that I think has that impact on a lot of people. For me, it was like, like I'm a real grown up now. Hmm. I'm someone's mom. I'm in charge of someone. So you absolutely are not going to talk to me like that. I also like got really angry about catcalls after I became a mother. Yeah. Because I, I think I thought before that that was an abuse I was expected to receive because I was young. And then once I had a baby, it was like, oh, hell no, 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 no. And it's not nobody should get that ever. But something about becoming a mother up the ante for me in terms of the respect I felt I deserved to receive on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting shift, isn't it? Yeah, like I'm a mom. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, trust me, like I, I, yeah, no, I'm. That's yeah. I could talk to you about that. Like, <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm like I. I mean, I'm 39, but I'm still like, uh, is this really happening? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty crazy. Are you enamored with the whole process? I remember when I was pregnant, I felt like no one had ever been pregnant before except me. (laughs) I think because I'm the last person out of pretty much the majority of people I know who wanted to have children. I still have friends that are childless by choice, but that I kind of just been 
a part of sort of understanding their process in terms of being a friend and being a supporter to them over the years. So I feel that way kind of within myself, but I guess not really when I'm talking to other people because I know they've been through it too. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I can't like there, it's in my stomach, like a person. Oh like, yeah. Just, like all of it just seems so unreal, even though I'd known my whole life how that worked. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It's pretty ridiculous and extremely fascinating at the same time. It's pretty. Yeah. I remember the first time my husband felt my daughter kick in my stomach. He thought he accused me of like of doing that somehow. I'm like, do you think that I can make my liver jump? Like what? (laughs) It's a new trick. (laughs) Do you think that I have? He was like, no, no. (laughs) It's remarkable. It is pretty cool. It is very cool. So let's talk about just, you know, some of the pushback you've received and how you handle that. I know you talk about some of the pushback you received. And you say from men in particular, noting that it's the ideologies that are the enemy, not necessarily like the person. But so what has helped you to continue to use your voice and to speak up, be resilient in these circumstances? I just feel very, very clear in my values. And a lot of times when somebody wants to argue my values with me, they don't actually want to have a conversation at all. They just want to, I don't know, it's almost always rhetoric. I'm still like holding out for, I have this idea that it's possible that I might have a really useful conversation with somebody who maintains support for 45, you know, and that has not occurred at all. Mm. But yeah, I've just come up with different tactics for how I deal with commenters. And all of them are trying to conserve my emotional energy and make sure that they're the ones doing the labor. And so I have a lot of tactics around that. But usually I'm mostly asking them if this is something that they want to discuss with me. Do you want my perspective on this? Like just like leading questions to see if this is even a conversation. And most people go away. Honestly, I don't get the kind of pushback that I used to, because I think a lot of those people have left. When I was in fitness, though, that was when it was the worst. Why? Well, it was mostly people didn't like what I had to say about, I was mostly talking about the intersections of body image and rape culture. Mm. And people wouldn't like what I had to say about that. And so they would tell me I was ugly and fat and, you know, just talking about this stuff to justify my body. Those were the primary comments. Wow. And, you know, a couple of things. One, like when I put my business online, that was my biggest fear is that someone was going to say that I was fat and ugly and didn't have the right to talk. Right. Mm. And so it was kind of like shock therapy. Like if you don't like snakes getting in like a tub of snakes. (laughs) Yes. That was like my biggest fear for so long. And now that just couldn't bother me less. You know, I'm Mm. like, not only is that not important to me, but I don't agree with you. I think I'm freaking beautiful and you don't have to think that at all. Like this is my dance space. That's yours. You have overstepped, but things have shifted so much and people have stopped coming to me for fitness. And so mostly people, since I shifted from, I used to be fit mama training and was a personal trainer. Since I shifted to Aaron Brown, the numbers move slower. Like I don't get 
as many people coming over and being like, yeah, I love this because they don't know who I am. Right. But also there's just a lot less pushback. So it's both that I don't emotionally engage with it and that I'm not fitness anymore. I don't know. Do you get a lot of pushback? You know, it's funny. I think I feel like when you're really polarizing and maybe I'm wrong. And I think part of it is obviously because like I'm in a more socially acceptable body. I you know, I do have privilege, so I, I don't experience the kind of harassment or, you know, hate that a lot of people get in body image and body positivity who are from marginalized groups. But, you know, I get some pushback, but I, I feel like when you are like a more fringe or polarized message, you just you have people who just love what you say and they're kind of your fans and you don't because you're not really operating in that gray area, you don't get a lot of the people from the other side kind of coming in to challenge you. At least that's sort of been my experience. Yeah, I'm not confused about where I stand. I don't like, you know, sell apples and then one day decided to say something political. Like I have always been political. I have always been somewhat polarizing because I know what I think and I'm clear about it and I'm educated in it. So (laughs) all of those things, I think, have made it kind of easy for people to sort themselves. That said, I do get a lot of direct messages from people who disagree with me. And those conversations tend to go really well. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. Uh, Yeah, because they're people who are like, I don't know, but I'm uncomfortable with this part, right? And it's usually more a clarifying thing. Or sometimes just the other day, it was like, you know, we just don't agree on this. And it was like, cool, have a great night. Like, so that's easy too. Yeah. I feel like it's gotten easier. I'm a little worried about if we're all just looking at shit that we agree with. Yes. We're all just shouting into a vacuum. I worry about that a lot, actually. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, how do we break out of that? It's become so I don't polarized. Know. I, mean, I think like it's really everybody's job to be having conversations at their dinner tables and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I worry that that's not happening enough. But I don't know. Yes. I don't know. But people are not arguing with me very much. I'll say that. They're not? Or they are? Not anymore. And it's been nice because since I wrote this book, I've really shifted to to really a lens of liberation work. And I'm excited about that. And it's a little bit harder to argue with, you know, because it's positive. Well, yeah. And I think that's my stance, too. I mean, I'm talking about you feeling good about yourself and your body. I mean, how can you argue against that? <laughs> like, I think where people take issue is I have a pretty hard line stance on like intentional weight loss and, you know, just this, that diets don't work. And, you know, even your little like lifestyle changes are often on disordered habit or dieting. And th- that's where I get people taking more issue, but not with the overall message of like, okay, let's realize that our worth isn't in our appearance. I think most people can get on board with that. Yeah. So let's talk about leadership, because you talk a lot about leadership and you say, I want us to raise the bar on leadership. What gaps do you see right now? And where do you want us to raise the bar? Oh, my goodness. I guess the main thing is that I would like within organizations and because of the space that I exist in, I'm mostly looking at women also because I don't see men showing up to this conversation at all. And so I have more faith in women doing better. But for women's organizations to care about diversity of input and not just diversity of photographs. Yes. I think that diversity becomes kind of a like a buzzword and ends up just about making sure that, you know, your merch has diverse bodies and <laughs> not actually thinking about what does it mean to have 
diversity in contribution and diversity in decision making and like really honoring a diverse spectrum of ideas and not photographs. Yeah. That's the biggest one. And it's tricky because if you are an organization that has primarily been white or, you know, heterocentric or whatever, then reaching out and trying to make some strides to diversify your organization is going to feel like tokenization. It's messy. There's not actually a great way to rectify that without it being kind of messy. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's really important. And I think that there are, while there are a lot of people who are just really off white women right now for good reason, there are a lot of people who aren't and who are ready to have these conversations and ready at the table at organizations that they've been looking to to do better. Mm -hmm. So that's the big one. That's huge. And you can see where companies fail at that a lot. Like if you think about, you know, where you've seen Dove make racist campaigns. Oh, my God. Like how many people had to approve of that Pepsi ad with what's her name? The Jenner girl. Yes. Yes. Like zero black people said this was okay. Yes. Yes. So what does your organization look like, Pepsi? And that's why, I mean, like companies don't actually have to give a shit about racism or social justice to like not want to screw up that badly. Right. Right. So even if you just care about your bottom line, it is abundantly important that you have a lot of perspectives there. And that I think is the gift of social media is that everybody, most people you know, with access to the internet, have the ability to self-publish themselves, have the ability to go viral, have the ability to add their perspective to the conversation all day, every day. And so there's no more like control over the American narrative, right? All these people get to weigh in. And so if you don't want to become a Pepsi ad, then you need to get your shit together and actually care about other perspectives. Yeah. And I feel like it's like, like you said, I mean, the information's everywhere. It's not that hard to educate yourself. And how many people must have seen these advertisements? I used to work in the consumer packaged goods industry. So I can tell you, at least from my experience, that it's like all white people for the most part. <laughs> and in the ad agencies and whatnot. Uh, So, yeah, it's a huge problem. Huge. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is true still, but I think at one point my husband was the only senior art director. He's a graphic designer in the Kansas City area. So he's in marketing as well. And he's the one, I think. So, yeah, it's a big deal. I also know that I have have other families that work in marketing and there's a company. I won't say who because I don't know if that would get somebody in trouble. But there is a company and there was a woman who'd come in to see like the pitch for their ads or whatever. And she walked into the room as a black woman and she looked at the room and she said, why is this all white people? And walked out. Hmm. (laughs) I'm like, yes, (laughs) yes. So, I mean, it's changing because there's a demand Mm -hmm. for change and it's a loud demand for change. And then there's also just like, so sadly people that are so far behind. And I mean, not to throw them under the bus, but I don't know how many cisgender men you have listened to this podcast I know not very many pay attention to anything that I do, Mm -hmm. but like, where are they at? I just saw the other day, a friend of mine was put on a list of like top 10 or 20 fitness professionals to follow or whatever. And the list was almost all men and almost all white. Mm -hmm. And so my friend who was on the list sent that guy a message and said, Hey, you know, you might consider these things that seem like big misses. And the person said, yeah, you know, I, I just hardly ever think about that. 
Yeah, I was included on a list of top 50 wellness professionals you should follow. And I can't remember if it was 50 women, females. I can't remember, but it was 50. They were all white, every single one. And I wrote them back and I'm like, I will not be sharing this. And here is why. And here are some people that you probably should have included on your list. And I mentioned a few women of color doing really good work in the Serena. And no, I never heard back from them. But I just was like, uh, <laughs> like... Does nobody look at this and think, hmm, this looks rather homogenous? <laughs> well, and white women, I think, are making some really, oh, just like embarrassing mistakes right now. And really since before the election cycle, the presidential election cycle, mostly because white people in general haven't often done a lot of identity work, mm-hmm. you know, around race. And so, well, at period, but around race specifically. And so, you know, it's sloppy to be learning about social justice issues for the first time and figuring out who you are in relationship to them and grappling with privilege and all of these things at once. Like, it's not like a cute process, mm-hmm. right? No. And there's women doing this in troves and they're doing it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just don't, I don't see, here's you back to the conversation about leadership. I don't see men grappling with that. I don't see men losing sleep at night because maybe they made somebody feel tokenized and they had a conversation about that that didn't go as well as they wanted them to. You know what I mean? Like I see men grappling with this shit. And so I'm like, you actually aren't fit to lead at all. And while there's a lot of white women typically and heterosexual women and people who are experiencing privilege kind of sloppy while they do their identity work right now, they're showing up to the work. And I don't want to give passes for sloppy work. I mean, I think you just work to do better and you don't make the same mistake again. Right. But they're showing up to it. Yeah. Yeah. This man that was like, oh, I just never think about this. And I'm thinking this woman who reached out to him has her own organization and it's all she thinks about. Mm -hmm. It's like, how have I screwed this up in the past? How am I not going to do that moving forward? How do I do that in a way that respects everyone involved? You know, like that's all she thinks about. And he's like, oh, I don't think about it. I'm like, what planet do you live on? Yes. What do you think about? But you're so right about that. Like men are not, there's no accountability and no, like they're just under the radar with, with everything. And you're, you're right. Like all the conversations on social justice are all being led and organized by women. And you're right. I mean, yeah. Women and non-binary people, not men, not cis men. Like they're just nowhere. And that's not even entirely fair. Maybe there's some gay men in there. Matt McGorry, he's the token guy that I'll vouch for. Mm-hmm. Do you follow him? No, I don't, but I will now. He was on How to Get Away with Murder. And he was also in Orange is New Black. Did you ever watch that show? I watched the first season. Okay, so he's the guard that gets one of the women pregnant. Oh, okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. He's like really sweet and he's all about standing up for racial justice, the surge chapter in LA, which I think is called White People for Black Lives. He's made some public mistakes and apologized. He's at every march. He's just everywhere being kind of great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like there's one. There's one token guy that I will say yes to uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm having a boy, so I'm like super I'm very conscious of these things. I'm like, okay, we gotta dismantle this is like an inside job happening in this house. That's what's gonna happen. <laughs> you know, I saw a quote, a Gloria Steinem quote, because her birthday was like yesterday, that said, We've learned to raise our girls like boys, but no one has the courage to raise our boys like girls. Right. And I was like, huh. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot to unpack, but that is, yeah, that's a lot to process, but it's something I'm I'm giving a lot of thought to, not that I'm putting expectations on who he'll be, if he'll even identify as he, 
But it's yeah, because originally I was like, oh, it'd be really cool to have a girl raise her as like a, you know, this like badass feminist. And then I found out it was a boy and I was like, okay, well, there's still so much opportunity here to, you know, instill values and and have them be yeah, just different. Yeah, not flying under the radar like all the other men out there right now. Yeah, I think you just raise a thoughtful person. Mm-hmm. The tricky part, and it'll probably be different for you than it is for me, but the tricky part I found is when other people get involved. So Lola goes to a really progressive school. They have gender-neutral bathrooms because they've had a lot of kids transition as early as kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And that's really right on schedule for identity development, actually. Lola had a kid in her class transition in kindergarten. So it's a really cool progressive school and there's a lot of sexism. She comes home every day pissed off about sexism and I don't think that the teachers are equipped to deal with it. I think they are just like, yeah, I mean, like this is what they're like, right? Like the expectations of boys behavior is just so low, you know, they're not supposed to hit people and then that's like beyond that is totally fine. Whereas the expectation of girls is is more about like cooperation and being courteous to each other and whatever. And really, I'm not sure about those expectations either. You're just trying to raise a thoughtful kid. And so what we do with Lola for everything is I'm honest with her all the time. And I tell her where I think ideas come from, you know, like there's this idea, like with the leggings, there's this idea that like girls bodies are distracting. What do you think about that? You know, and she says, well, you know, mom, I think it's all bullshit. That's her favorite word. Mm-hmm. I'm like, great. Wonderful. Can you tell me about like, what about boys would be distracting? And she doesn't know. So we just talk about these things really frankly all the time so that she's always critically thinking about what people are saying to her. But it's tricky. It's tricky because there's magazines. It's tricky because there's teachers. It's tricky because you're not actually in charge of all of the information that goes into your kid's brain. Yeah, of course. Of course. Do you have time for one more quick thing? I sure do. Yeah, okay. And it's kind of just on the tails of what you're just talking about. But one of the quotes that I wrote down that I loved was white women are the only group of mothers I've experienced as not only refusing to teach their children about oppression, but supporting it. So just now you talked about, you know, speaking about these ideas with Lola to unpack them together. What are other ways that you suggest mothers do better or parents? Let's say parents do better. Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) there's part of it, right? Like the bar for my husband was really shocked about this when I pointed out to him how ridiculous it was that all of the female family members were applauding him changing diapers. And he was like, oh, yes. I'm like, have you noted that no one is delighted that I changed diapers? No, like that doesn't. It's just amazing how these things you just take for granted. Yeah. So we talk about everything. In fact, Lola and I just watched Dirty Dancing the other day. She's old enough for that to be a movie that she's seen now and had a conversation about my abortion because abortion was on there. And I wanted to have that conversation before it was something that, you know, came up outside of the home or was something that she had some context for. We just talk about everything out the gate. When there is the Nazis in Charlottesville, we talked about that, which ended up being really important because there were Nazis in our town Mm. marching not that long after. Wow. And so we talk about everything. And that would have been the case anyway. My husband's black. So we talk about race. She knows about police brutality. We worry about daddy. If he's more than 15 minutes late, that's a regular part of our experience. Mm. White women are the only ones that think that they can protect their children's innocence. And so we don't do that about anything. And as a result of that, she's just a really well-informed child. And she's still a really happy child. She's not going to get 
Like a lot of kids, which I don't think this is a blessing at all. A lot of kids don't think about this stuff until they go to college and they get smacked in the face with it. And then it's either like denial or shame or whatever, like all of this stuff comes up because they're seeing what happens in the world that they weren't told about. Right. So I think you talk about this stuff. I think you talk about what's in the news. I think you talk about what you think. I think you talk about what other people think. Whenever my kid asks me what I think, I tell her three different perspectives before my own, mm-hmm. you know, and I ask her what she thinks. But I just think we have to be much more open with our kids about the realities of the world, particularly if they're experiencing privilege, thoughtful about how we instill values, but also that we teach critical thinking above everything else and that we don't wait until our kids are 25 to expect them not to be ignorant anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. start now, start little, start as a baby. It's actually significantly easier than trying to share your opinions about something like reproductive justice once your kid is already like has friends who've had pregnancy scares, right? Mm -hmm. That's too late to be having that discussion. So we've had all of those discussions and Lola's almost 10. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's so helpful to know. Because I think, yeah, you probably go in with this mindset thinking they're too young or innocent, like can't strip away their childhood. But like you said, you're not. You're actually just making them more like better critical thinkers, able to do better work as they get older. Yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah. And Lola really appreciates that I don't lie to her. She -hmm. thanks me for not lying to her all the time. You know, and that said, like I'm not it's all kid appropriate stuff, right? Like I'm not, we're not watching, I don't know, like pornographic tutorials or something when we're having a sex conversation, but she knows how sex works. And even the idea that these things are supposed to wait until people are old enough to handle it puts all of these conversations in some like taboo space. And it's not like sex is how she got here. Race is a part of our everyday experience as is gender, as is sexuality. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a part of life Mm -hmm. and it makes it all less, I don't know, like salacious or something less dicey. It's not like some like scary thing that she knows about. It's not a secret. It's just all open for conversation, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So good. Thank you for that. That's awesome. I feel like that's going to help a lot of people listening too. Yeah, it's good. And she has really great questions often that I don't have the answer to. So it's fun to figure things out together. But she's never asked me something that I didn't feel comfortable answering or giving her an honest answer to. Mm -hmm. And that I hope will continue to mean a lot about our relationship. Yeah, it sounds like you guys that you have really great bond and open relationship, which is so important. Yeah, so far, so good. I'm seeing little like, bits of, you know, preteen stuff. Yeah. (laughs) You're gonna have to leave me, aren't you? But she'll get mad at me and like, slam a door or say something kind of mean or whatever. And then she's such an emotionally intelligent kid that she'll come back like tearful and be like, I just don't know what's happening to me. I think hormones. I am so sorry. I don't want to become a mean teenager. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. Oh, I love that she doesn't want to become a mean teenager. That's so nice. (laughs) Really worried about it. Oh, she's sweet. That's really sweet. The last thing I just want to say, I just pulled my absolute favorite quote from the whole book, which is empowerment can't look like rooms full of white women talking about calories. I just Mm. want to like say that that was so good. (laughs) 
Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, empowerment is such a positive concept, but I'm really overseeing it sitting next to a salad. And, (laughs) you know, a salad can be a really important part of someone getting in touch with their body. I mean, I don't want to like... No, salads are okay. They're they're fine. (laughs) You know, but like that can't be, especially at this juncture when we've got so many critical issues on the table. I hazard to like name one because it would not name another. Right. But like life and death scenarios at the hands of our government and we're going to put empowerment next to a salad. Mm -hmm. Like that's just not leadership I can hang with. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a big statement, but it's so, I mean, it just, it weaves into everything I talk about. So I love that quote. That's definitely going on the quotable for this podcast. (laughs) So (laughs) I could talk to you about so many things. I just I hope everyone goes out and picks up a copy of Sovereign and follows you obviously, on all your different platforms. But the book is just it's really powerful. It's like I said, it's visceral and so so good. So I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, and thank you. I'm so excited about your baby. Thank you. Oh, where can people find you? Oh, I am Erin Brown. Okay. At I am Erin Brown everywhere. And Instagram is the main place that I like to be everywhere else. Yes, your Instagram posts are amazing. So good. So, so good. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Talk to you soon. Rock on. I feel like I could have talked to Erin forever about so many different things. As I said, her book is amazing. So make sure you go and pick up a copy of Sovereign and check out everything that Erin is saying and doing. Thank you so much for listening today. I will see you, talk to you soon. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.